Song of Solomon chapter 2 this morning. I can tell you my wife circled this one on the calendar uh, many months ago. Cannot wait for her husband to preach about Song of Songs. Surprised you're sitting in the front row. All right, so we're, we're in the midst, if you're new here and you're wondering what in the world is going on, we're actually in the midst of a sermon series called The Thread, where we're going through every single book of the Bible and preaching a chapter or two out of each, connecting it to the broader storyline and ultimately connecting it to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that means we go through every book of the Bible, and so today we are in the Song of Songs. I'm going to pray, we've got an intro video, and then we'll dive in together. Sound good? Yep. All right, let's pray. God... We are here this morning uh, needing to hear from you. God, you are good, and we thank you that you have spoken into every area of human existence in life. I pray that we would heed your wisdom. Holy Spirit, would you help me uh, cover a challenging topic um, this morning, but a good topic? Lord, would you help us to bring our sexuality to you and allow you to provide wisdom on how we ought to live skillfully? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me or in spite of me, but speak in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The Book of Song of Solomon was written by King Solomon around 965 BC. It features a collection of ancient love poems that depict a virtuous love between a husband and wife. As the couple awaits their wedding day, they express to each other their fervent desire to know and be fully known by one another. Each lover praises the other's splendor with repetition and symbolic imagery. When the lovers ultimately wed, they join with intense passion, delighting in the fullness of one another's bodies. The husband and wife finally experience the richness of an emotional, spiritual, and sexual love within the context of marriage. Song of Solomon gives us an image of marriage untainted by selfishness and sin, where the depth of love can thrive within God's design. I don't know if you've had this experience or not, but often the first time you open up your Bible and discover the book of Song of Songs, the first thought in your head is, what in the world is semi-erotic love poetry doing in the Bible, right? Or maybe you discovered this book as a middle school boy and immediately ran to your friends so that you could snicker and laugh about the Bible talking about breasts and thighs and even loins, Nobody? Just me. Okay. (laughs) And yet, we shouldn't be shocked at all that God has something to say about romantic relationships and human sexuality. He created it, after all. Um, And actually, what's shocking to some people is that the book of Song of Songs portrays human sexuality primarily in a positive way. Light, that it is meant to be experienced and enjoyed by God's people within certain parameters. So if you don't get anything else that I say today, please make sure that you understand these three things. They'll kind of provide an overview and guide our time together. First, sex is a gift from God that's meant to be enjoyed. Second, to experience sexual intimacy without shame, we must embrace God's instructions for it and boundaries on it. And third, at its best, sexual or romantic love is meant to point beyond itself 
to an even deeper relationship that is offered to every one of us in God. So, depending on your upbringing or background, you you might have some misconceptions about human sexuality. What we see is that in the Bible, sex is not gross, as maybe overly religious or prudish people might have you believe, something that we don't talk about at all. Nor is sexuality a God replacement that many people who have been heavily influenced by the sexual revolution might try to convince you to believe. Sex is a gift of God meant to be enjoyed in such a way that not only brings joy and intimacy to a human couple, but points beyond itself to something even deeper and more sweet. The book's opening line in chapter 1, verse 1 is this, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, the the phrase Song of Songs is used in Hebrew poetry much like King of Kings or Lord of Lords. It means the greatest of songs, the song above all other songs. And isn't it interesting that the greatest of songs is a love song? It's an erotic love song. The line... Song of Songs, which is Solomon, can be either interpreted as Solomon is the author, or it was written in the wisdom tradition or in honor of Solomon. Uh, Many people conclude, because of this phrase, that Solomon must have written it. He was, after all, one of the wisest human beings ever to live, that he might speak into this particular area of human existence. And yet others, reading the story of Solomon, would say, hey, wait a second, We're talking about a guy who had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Why in the world would we trust him to write a book about romantic love and sexual desire? I mean, he thoroughly messed that up in his life. And so those who who claim Solomonic authorships to this would would say that, that this song is actually almost a lament from Solomon of his first love, the time that he got it right with the Shunammite woman. Others would point to kind of the Jekyll and Hyde nature of King Solomon that we read about in 2 Kings. On the one hand, he is the wisest man who ever lived and and rules with wisdom and, and savvy. And yet on the other hand, he foolishly allows his heart to be turned away from the one true God. So then others would say, you know what, Solomon didn't necessarily write the book. The phrase, which is Solomon's, uh, means that it just falls within the wisdom tradition of Solomon. That he didn't write it, but maybe he funded the work. Or maybe it was just written in the wisdom tradition that Solomon started, like the Proverbs. In fact, they would point out that the primary voice in this particular song is a female voice, a woman's voice, that comprises about 70% of the lines that instruct us about human sexuality. Isn't that interesting that we often think that sex is a, is a male-driven thing, and yet we see a female voice often in the pursuit and, and speaking into these things here. So the question then becomes, who is this Shulamite woman? Now she's either, scholars believe, she's either a woman from the region of Shulam, which was in southern Galilee, or actually the name Shul, or Shulamite is the feminine version of the name Solomon. So you know how like Chris and Christine or Dan and Danica or Patrick and Patricia? The, the Hebrew Solomon is Shalomo or Shlomo and Shulamite is the feminine version of that. So here's what I think. I'm not convinced that Solomon is the one who wrote it. It seems to be to be more of a collection of songs that explore human sexuality and romantic love in the way that God intended it to be. 
If you look at the song as a whole, you see that it is filled with nature and garden imagery that, that serves kind of as a hyperlink for us that should connect us to what? To what? The Garden of Eden. And in particular, in the Garden of Eden, the, the end of chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so what the book Song of Songs asks us, gets us to begin pondering and thinking through all of these links to garden imagery, is what does it mean to be naked and unashamed with another human being? Song of Songs paints that picture for us of what it's supposed to be like. See, in the Garden of Eden, human beings are depicted in a relationship that is both extremely vulnerable, but also joyfully free from any and all shame. But now that sin has entered the world and tainted this world, our fallen world, human relationships, even though they are the ones that were supposed to be the purest and, and best, we now find are not the way that they're supposed to be, are broken. And that often human sexuality, rather than leading to no shame, leads to shame and disappointment, and often a sense of feeling used or betrayed. The Song of Songs invites us to regrasp and delight in God's original plan for human sexuality. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read chapter 2 in just a minute, which will give you a flavor for the poetry in this book. We'll pull out some of the examples given on how it defines and categorizes romantic and sexual love for us. And in the end, I'll connect it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'll leave you to explore the rest of the book as you see fit. In, in fact, we intentionally chose a passage that isn't too steamy or erotic because there's far more racy sections than chapter two. Because there's middle schoolers here, okay? We'll keep it PG. Sound good? I'll say this about the way in which Song of Songs is written. It is written intentionally to make us blush, but it never strays into crassness. It isn't intended to be a Christian Kama Sutra manual about sexual positions and techniques at all, but rather a reflection on what romantic and sexual love is supposed to be at its best. Think naked and unashamed. And we'll see here that God's intent is not just a physical sexual act, but rather a whole life of intimacy with another human being. Song of Songs, chapter 2. Here we go. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. Notice you'll see that sometimes it goes from the female voice to the male voice. Those are... Um, editor introductions to try to make sense of the, of the different language, but it goes back and forth. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so was my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. 
my beloved speaks to me and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, and they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Until he grazes among the lilies, until the or he breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Well, there's a lot to cover in these verses, and there's a lot of imagery in Hebrew poetry, but I'll give you just a brief overview of how we're going to kind of walk through it. There are six categories of romantic love or love that I think are uh, given to us or shown in this particular chapter. There's the attraction of love, the security of love, the delight of love, the timing of love, the annoyances that steal love, and the exclusivity of love. So we'll just walk through each of them. First of all, the attraction of love in verses 2 and 3. Simply put, my eyes are only for you. She says in verse 1, I am just one flower in the field. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. Who am I? I'm just a flower in the field. There's lots of flowers in the field. But he replies in verse 2, oh no, as a lily among the brambles, so is my love among the young women. You are a lily in comparison to all of the other young women. They are thorns and brambles compared to you. He says, you stand out to me. You are beautiful to me. I like you best. Then she responds the same way. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. She says, I like you best too. Of all the trees in the forest, I want your fruit. You are sweet to me, a delight to me. When it comes to romantic love, God made us to find others attractive. It's how we're created. It's part of romantic love. You're pretty. You're beautiful to me. I'm attracted to you. Now that includes the outward appearance and looks that we are drawn to, especially initially, but then extends to who you are as a person. Notice how it it moves through all of the others. Of all of the others, I noticed you. See, in order for romantic love to truly flourish, there is an element of exclusivity to it. It's if they are each saying, I only have eyes for you. Guys, this is what makes pornography so devastating to the other person. It's as if we're constantly telling them, you're not enough for me. And it destroys the bond of intimacy. See, beauty is an interesting thing, isn't it? Have you ever heard the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Isn't that a beautiful thing? That there is actually no universal agreed upon standard of beauty. That means that we are the delight to someone else's eyes. 
See, beauty was meant to be something that was a whole person kind of thing, that included the outward appearance, but also who you were, your character, your virtue, your whole life. Sadly, in our pornographic culture, we have tried to reduce the standard of beauty to a bunch of parts. And here's the ugly truth of that. No one meets the standard. Not one person, even the the greatest of supermodels, don't tick off all of the boxes of what this false standard of beauty that we have created is. We reduce human beings to parts and wonder why we feel so devastated, destroyed, and used. And yet we see here, you are a delight to my eyes. Of all of the trees in the forest, you're an apple tree. You're the one I want. Of all of the flowers in the field, you're a lily to me and all the other ones are thorns. Isn't that a beautiful part of romantic love? It means that someone should find you attractive. And that that does include your outward appearance, but that's not all it is. And beauty is a holistic thing without a universally agreed upon standard. And so we all have hope, right? And that's a good thing. That's how God created us and made us, and that's how romantic and sexual relationships flourish. We'll come back to that theme of exclusivity at the end. Second one, the security or the safety of love. We read in verses 3 and 4, With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Two illustrations are at play here. First is the shade of an apple tree, and then that of being under a military banner whose name is or word is love. Both of these indicate it is a place of safety or trust, either protection from the sun beating down on you or protection from military enemies. There is a security found in romantic love with another, a sense of everyone knowing, yeah, I'm with her or I'm with him. He brought me to the banqueting house, meaning he's not ashamed of me. Everybody knows that that I'm his girl. And he put a banner over me that says love. He claims, or he, he claims me, he protects me. So we see the attraction of love and the security of love in this young couple. Third, we'll see in verse five, the delight of love. A sense of infatuation or giddy love or in the words of Bambi, Twitter-pated love, Right? As you step back from the poem, it's obvious to see the intoxicating delight that this couple is for one another. Verse 5, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. Verse 14, oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Now, why all of the references to wine and intoxication? Why the phrase, refresh me, for I am sick with love? Is it just to make the Baptists among us a little bit uncomfortable with all these references to wine and intoxication? I don't think so. See, there's something about romantic love that is intoxicating to us, isn't it? It's meant to be that. There's a genuine delight in getting swept up in one another. There should be genuine joy and delight in the other. We read, I love your voice. Your face is lovely to me. I want to see you. I am faint or sick with love. 
And so there is a sense of falling in love that is intoxicating, and it's meant to be. Now, if that's true, let's apply wisdom to romantic love. Because love can intoxicate us in a good way, and it can also blind us in a bad way, can't it? See, this kind of love is powerful, but it is also dangerous. Beautiful in that God made us this way. It's what we want to get swept up in. It's why Hallmark can still produce the same movie over and over and over, and we buy it and watch it, right? It's the kind of thing that smooths over the minor annoyances of life and marriage with another sinful human being. And yet, if not balanced with wisdom, it has the potential to blind us to what we should see, but we don't. See, we can get swept up in this kind of love, intoxicated by this love, so that you don't see in the other person what everybody else clearly sees. Can I just be honest with you guys? Marriage is hard, but so is dating, right? So is trying to figure out, is this the person for me? Because often with it, we are infatuated. We are intoxicated with a sense of love. We, we, we look at them, and, and they seem to kind of float above the ground, right? This is why it's so important to do relationships, both marriage and dating, in the context of community. In the context of people who love you and are willing to speak the truth into your life. Who maybe see some, something in the other that you yourself don't see because you are blinded with love. Now that's a great thing in the context of a marriage, right? Being blinded a bit to the other person's flaws, being, that's a good thing that often makes marriage work. But in dating, now can I, can I be honest with you guys? No friend relishes going up to their friend and saying, ah, they're bad news. Because we want good things for our friends, right? We want them to fall in love. We want them to be happy. But sometimes when they don't see maybe what we see, or it's, I don't want to be the person that tells you that. And yet often love determines that I need to sometimes say the hard thing because you are intoxicated or blinded by love here. And love would demand to say, hey, I don't think they actually bring the best out in you. So there's a sense in romantic love, and then also, too, in, in the context of a marriage, it's good to be involved in community to hold us to our vows and to point us back to that person in a different way. But we, when, we, when we do romance and we do love, we, we often think about doing that on our own or in isolation, and actually that is a very dangerous spot to be. I think we see alluded to that in verse 7 where someone else speaks in or where she kind of asks for advice. It says, um, and this gets into the timing of love, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now three times in the Song of Songs, this phrase, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases, is found. It's repeated here and in chapter 3, verse 5, and in chapter 8, verse 4 at the very end. Why? Because there is a time for romantic and sexual love to run without inhibitions, and there's a time for us to wait and not participate in that. The way that God has designed human sexuality to work and flourish is in a committed monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. It's what the whole song is about, how to experience nakedness without shame. 
And what sexuality points to is a deeper need for intimacy with another human being. See, while sexual intimacy is enjoyable, when it's not experienced in a relationship that has intimacy on every level, it leads us not to joy and safety and security, but isolation and shame and confusion and sometimes a false sense of closeness. See, our world has perfected having sex without experiencing intimacy, reducing it simply to a physical act or function. In the, same, in the opposite way, you can experience a deep and profound intimacy with another person, with sexuality and sex not even being involved. But in marriage, God has designed that those two things would go together, strengthening a bond of intimacy that is beautiful and deep and profound and meant to be experienced at every level, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, financially. It's why we're warned, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That's why often in, in engagement, as couples are talking about all kinds of things and, and beginning to make their lives one mentally and financially and, and, and spiritually and emotionally as they dream together about the future, that's why physical oneness feels so out of whack. That's why temptation seems so great in that moment, because it is, but not meant to be ultimately bonding or experienced until you actually covenant with one another in a binding kind of way. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Christopher West is a theologian who, who I thought gave an unbelievable illustration, so I'm just going to steal it from him. Imagine that on this piece of paper is a, is a painting, is a masterpiece and it's a masterpiece of Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where the man and his wife are naked and without shame. It is beautiful. It is something that God created and something that we are to admire. But then in Genesis chapter 3, that which is beautiful and, um, and majestic is, is crumpled up and distorted and twisted so that some have seen the crumpled or the broken version of sexuality and conclude, throw it out. We don't even talk about that. We don't think about that. It's just, it's gross. It's, it's necessary for kids, but, but, but we won't, that, that's it. And then others responding to kind of this prudish, like, uh, th that's not good, have said, wait a second. No, it's actually still good. And they take the crumpled up version and they begin to elevate it in its distorted or perverted form. Now, they're right in the sense that we are not to throw out human sexuality. God created it, and he created it good. But they are wrong to embrace the distortion. You see, the word eros, or romantic love, is not the same as pornea or, or, or pornographic. We often treat eros, or, or God's design for human sexuality, as inherently pornographic or broken. What Christians need to do, and what the Song of Songs helps us to do, is uncrumple what God has made straighten it out, and begin to see glimpses of what God has created as good. That's what Song of Songs does, and it helps us to live skillfully. And when we do, the timing of love is incredibly beautiful. Listen to the delight found in verses 12 and 13, and notice how many of the allusions are to timing and just the right time. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. 
Do not awaken or stir up love until it pleases. Some of my favorite weddings to do are not the ones of young 20-year-olds, even though they are a delight as well. There's a ton of idealism and naivety toward life that they're just going to discover together. Some of my favorite weddings are for those in their 30s and 40s who have waited and waited. Sometimes giving up hope and despairing that anybody would ever find them attractive or pursue them. Wrestling deeply with this desire of their heart, but knowing that God ultimately has to fill that and waiting and waiting. And then at the right time, they find their love. And family and friends come around them and rejoice with them of you've waited and enjoy. Enjoy. So, do not awaken love before it, or stir up love before it arises, before it pleases. The attraction of love, the security of love, the delight of love, the timing of love, two more. Verse 15, the annoyances that can steal love. Verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. I love how honest the Bible is. Even in the midst of a book on married and sexual love, they are honest that there's a lot of things that can ruin this kind of love. It's not simply a heaven, happily ever after after you find the person, but rather keep watch on the good vineyard that is love. And just as foxes can wreak havoc in a well-tended garden, so large and small annoyances or enemies can ruin a good marriage or ruin specifically the marriage bed. Jack Deere writes in his commentary, the foxes represented as many obstacles or temptations as have plagued lovers throughout the centuries. Perhaps it is the fox of uncontrolled desire which drives a wedge of guilt between a couple. Perhaps it is the fox of mistrust and jealousy which breaks down the bond of love. Or it may be the fox of selfishness and, and pride which refuses to let one acknowledge his fault to another. Or it may be an unforgiving spirit which will not accept the apology of the other. These foxes have been ruining vineyards for years, and the end of their work is not in sight. Just because romantic love has been achieved doesn't mean that it doesn't also need to be maintained. Married couples, I don't know what the particular foxes that are maybe running around in the vineyard of your marriage are. But here we have the woman's voice to her lover, to her man, saying, can you remove the foxes? Can you tend to the foxes so they don't destroy the beautiful thing that we have here? Now, I know for some of you it's shocking that not every new thing you learn about your spouse is a delight to your eyes or your senses. But um, sometimes you find out that they snore or that they're not as clean around the house as you want them to be, or that he watches more football than you even thought possible, or she gets crabby after a long day of work, or maybe you wake up with morning breath. In our marriages, we need to tend to the foxes that can run rampant. Otherwise, the, the garden of our love gets destroyed. So we have the attraction of love, the security of love, the delight of love, the timing of love, and the annoyances that steal love, finally we see the exclusivity of love in verses 16 and 17. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft of the mountains. Here we see the exclusivity of love. To be completely known and possessed by another is the desire that's expressed. 
Now, these verses are actually blatantly sexual, filled with the innuendo in Hebrew that talk about sex, and yet they are more than that. There's a sense of intimacy that happens only in an exclusive relationship, a whole life relationship where you are mentally, emotionally, financially, spiritually one so that the greatest freedom physically to experience oneness is also cultivated. My beloved is mine and I am his. That's beautiful, isn't it? And that's deep down what I think almost everyone in this room longs for in your marriage or someday in your marriage. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. But can we think for a moment about the nature of sexuality and how it doesn't terminate on itself but actually points beyond itself? Eros or romantic love, sexual love, is meant to be iconic for us as human beings to point us to something deeper, namely the relationship that we have with Jesus, our bride, as his people. See, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, after the Apostle Paul writes all of these practical marriage advice to the married couples in the church of Ephesus, says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? We've been talking about it the whole time. It was Genesis 2. This mystery, he's talking about this one flesh union of marriage. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery of romantic and sexual love does not terminate on itself. Yes, it is one of the most powerful things that we can experience in human relationships, but even that, as good as it is, points us to something deeper. The one that we as God's people are meant to have with God, and it echoes Jesus in his relationship with his bride, the church. Does that make anybody uncomfortable? Sometimes it's hard for, especially dudes, to get your mind around the idea that you are Jesus' bride. Uh, ladies, we st- often struggle with you are a son of God, right? But, but these, these images, these relationships, these parallels are meant to point us to something deeper. And so the Song of Songs is not primarily an allegory between God and his people or Jesus and his church. It's written primarily so that we would live skillfully in all of life, including the sexual or romantic part of life. And yet, it echoes a deeper reality of Christ in the church like the best of sexually fulfilled marriages, even greater. You see, we need to pay attention to the greatest of God's gifts because they teach us the most profound truths about who he is. On the flip side, we must guard what is being profaned. Again, Christopher West writes this, if the body and sex are meant to proclaim our union with God, and if there's an enemy who wants to separate us from God, what do you think he's going to attack? If we want to know what is most sacred in this world, all we need do is look for what is most violently profaned. And brothers and sisters, is that not true in this particular moment of our lives? We live in an over-hyper-sexualized culture where everything is turned towards sex and sexuality. Any kind of love gets sexualized immediately, and rather than producing the freedom that it says it offers It brings just a new form of bondage, doesn't it? On the flip side, Song of Songs also shows us that to treat human sexuality in a prudish way is not God-honoring either. 
In overly religious or fundamentalist circles, there's an assumed, we don't talk about sex. It's just necessary for reproduction. But the Bible deals with human sexuality in a way that is far more explicit than many of us, frankly, are very comfortable with. This is where we need to lean into the biblical wisdom and realize it is absolutely spot on. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the fall and sin has distorted and broken sexuality, at least in part, in all of us. Everyone in this room is in some way broken or in need of sexual healing. Maybe we had sex before marriage and we feel broken and shameful about it. Or maybe our married, we are married, but our, our sexual life together is filled with disappointment and frustration, maybe even pain rather than joy. Or maybe your sexual desires seem broken and out of whack. All of us have experienced the stain and brokenness of sin in this area of our life, which is why Jesus' posture towards sexual sinners in the New Testament should be such good news to us. When we zoom ahead and we look at Jesus in the, in the gospel stories, we see that sexual sinners are welcomed and embraced by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to continue on their way, but to go and sin no more and to be healed. Whether it was the prostitute in Luke chapter 6, when Jesus is eating at the house of a well-known Pharisee who comes in and washes his feet with her tears and her hair and takes the most expensive possession in her possession and breaks it and pours perfume on his feet, an incredibly seductive and probably culturally inappropriate thing to do, Jesus does not shame her but rather honors her. He says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. And he says to this woman, who who is known as a prostitute, who would probably hear all kinds of whispers and jabs behind her back, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Or maybe my favorite story in the New Testament, where Jesus engages with the Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritan woman, who in this pagan and, and, and distorted like culture and city doesn't even go to the well at the same time as everybody else because she was a sexual outcast among her own heathen people. And Jesus engages with her and he says, what you thirst for is living water, not the water in this well. If you come to me, I can give you living water that will quench the deepest thirst in your soul. She says, sounds good to me. And he says, okay, go get your husband and bring him back and I'll give you this living water. You got to imagine at that moment, she's like, "Uh uh-oh, him too. Because the truth about her and what Jesus calls out is that you've had five husbands and the guy that you're shacking up with right now isn't even your husband. He doesn't even have the decency to put his banner over you as love. And in that moment where the woman thinks that he's going to be just like everybody else and just rub that shame in my face, he says, what you thirst for essentially is never going to be found in men. What your heart really longs for, the deepest thirst of your soul, can't be met in a sexual or romantic relationship because it can only be met in me. You know what he does? He uses this woman to reach her entire village. Come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did and loved me anyways. Brothers and sisters, This is good news for sexually broken people, isn't it? 
whether you are married or single, whether you have a great sex life or your sexuality is filled with incredible disappointment, the deepest thirst in your soul, the longing that you have to be fully known and know is available to everyone here in the Lord Jesus Christ. So your sexual desires are not what defines you. Jesus defines you. In fact, it's the good news for people who are waiting and the good news for married people that your spouse doesn't have to be your end-all, be-all. Rather, Jesus can. See, if you approach marriage with another person as if they are the one who complete you, they are the one who gives meaning and purpose to your existence, they will let you down, I promise you. No human being can bear that weight. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus can. He can and he does bear that weight. And you know what that frees your spouse to be? Your spouse, not your God. And you can have the best spouse in the world and they make a lousy God. Or you can have the one true God and your spouse is just free to be your spouse. So let me close in four ways making it really practical. First, God has much to say about your sexuality. Listen to him. Perhaps you and your partner, your spouse, might enjoy reading the Song of Songs together. It might even bring some healing in your romantic relationship. Maybe you should start communicating in that area of your life again. God wants you to enjoy that as a good gift within its proper bounds. Listen to his wisdom on that. Second, we're told wait on God's timing for sexual love. If you're not married, then heed the words of the Song of Songs, not to awaken or stir up love before the proper time. I could say much on this. I'll keep it simple and straightforward. Engaging in any sexual relationships outside the bounds of God-given covenant marriage between a man and a woman is sin, and it will lead to heartache and pain. That's what it was created for. It was created to bond you together in a covenant relationship, and it just tears apart. It's like this. It's like a fire. When you're sitting in the living room and the fire is in the fireplace, it's cozy, it's warm, it's wonderful. Adds light and heat and warmth to the room. But if that fire gets outside of the fireplace and spreads throughout the rest of the living room, all of a sudden, it's not so pleasant anymore, is it? Sexual love is a lot like a fire. In its proper place, it burns and it warms the whole place. When it gets outside of that, it just absolutely destroys and tears down. Third, I've said this a lot, but don't look to a romantic or sexual relationship to fill a void that only God can do. Let your spouse be your spouse, not your God. Fourth, if you're here this morning and you've experienced a, maybe an acute level of sexual brokenness, heartache, maybe you were abused at some point in your life, maybe you just, maybe you didn't get this right in any way. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus can make you clean. He cleanses us from the stain and filth of our sin and offers us intimacy with him, the thing that the best of sexual relationships only point to. I, I don't know what happened, but I know in a room this size, there's a lot of brokenness. And a lot of times in, in the midst of sexual brokenness, we feel a sense of defilement. We feel acutely the stain of sin, maybe based on our choices or maybe based on the choices of someone else that we just got caught up in and we, we were a victim. 
often those who are victims of sexual abuse and sin, what is the first thing that they do? They take a shower. Why? Because they feel deeply the stain and defilement of sin. The good news of the gospel is that when Jesus came and he died, he not only died as our substitute, bearing in his body the penalty for our sin, also through his shed blood, he cleanses us from our sin and he washes us and makes us new. And so if you're dealing with the brokenness of that, my my encouragement to you this morning is to bring it to Jesus. He longs for nothing more today than to heal you to help you to see yourself like God sees you, which is now through the lens of Jesus, squeaky clean, because of all the things that he has done. And you are washed and you are made new. The book of 2 Corinthians says, we are new creations. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the good news offered to us today. I pray that we would Heed your advice on romance and sex, that we would walk within the boundaries and parameters that you have set for us, and that in doing that, we would enjoy one of the greatest of your gifts. God, help us to say no to temptation and yes to your perfect plan. God, for those in this room that are feeling deeply the the defilement of sin, maybe bound up with all kinds of shame. Holy Spirit, would you explode the beauty and the meaning of the gospel in their heart today that they might know in the core of their being that they have been cleansed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.